Welcome to Brooklyn's Members TV and Podcast. I'm Steve Clark, and I'm delighted to be joined by the author and motor enthusiast, Chaz Parker. After very much delay, Chaz, welcome this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Absolute pleasure. Um, now, we're here to review your latest book, Ford Model T, An Enthusiast Guide, published by Porter Press International at what I believe is a very affordable price of £30. Chaz, before we discuss the book, um, your background in becoming a motoring journalist has kind of been far from conventional, one would say. I'm led to believe you've had um, astronomy to part to play in this. Yes, and my my first uh, career was working at the Royal Greenwich Observatory, which um, wasn't at Greenwich in those days. It was at a place called Hurston Zoo in East Sussex, having moved from Greenwich after the Second World War to get away from the streetlights of London. Um, we had various telescopes um, down there. They're now all um, on locations abroad. But um, yes, for many years, I worked there. Um, astronomy was a great interest of mine. I ended up doing press and public relations work um, and then decided to do a career change late in life and try to start writing about my other love, which was motorsport. You'd clearly had a long love affair with the sport. When did that start? Early on? Yes, in my teens, I got a Skelectric set and watched the the odd bit of motor racing on television. I mean, we didn't get much in those days, um, but thoroughly enjoyed what there was. Um, I was taken to Brands Hatch um, one time, end of 1969, I think it was, to just see a little club meeting. And then in 1970, I went to the BOAC 1000 kilometer sports car event um, with the big Porsche 917s and Ferrari 512s. Um, And it absolutely hammered down with rain and I got soaked to the skin within the first 10 minutes. And I absolutely loved it. And I walked around the track and got the note like the back of my hand and I was absolutely hooked from then on. Yeah. Um, Back in the days when the uh garage facilities were on a slope in the car park as i recall that's right yes (laughs) if only those days could come back um obviously your latest but i say obviously your book is really a departure from motorsport um in general it is i've usually written about either racing circuits i've done the history of brands hatch and the history of silverstone um, and I've written about um, classic um, competition cars like the C and D type Jaguar and Bugatti type 35. So this is probably the first time I've done a book which is a, about a road car, essentially, rather than a competition one. OK, um, before we go into the book, I have to say that your quote or using your quote by John Steinbeck is by far the best intro to any motoring book I've ever I've ever read. <laughs> How did that come about? <laughs> did you just pick that up by chance? We won't we won't quote it. We'll leave it to um, the readers to buy your book and find out why you <laughs> used it. Um, as when when you're doing any research into a book, you you Google your subject matter and you see what comes up. And it turned out that um, Steinbeck had referred to uh, the Model T Ford in his 1945 novel Cannery Row. Yeah. 
Um, and as you say, we'll we'll leave it at that and let the uh, <laughs> it may you always go and buy it. <laughs> it made me smile, which is uh, which is good. So um, the obvious question that we always ask is, how did the idea for the book come about, and how did you involve Chris Barker and Neil Tuckett? Um, the book started life as a Haynes manual. Um, I'd already written three manuals um, on the D-Type Jaguar, um, Bugatti Type 35 and the Lola T70 sports car. And I was asked by my commissioning editor at Haynes if I'd be interested in doing the Model T. Um, it was so different from anything else I'd written about. Yeah. I jumped at the opportunity. I mean, I'd, I'd made an Airfix Kitter one when I was in my teens and, you know, always thought it was a lovely looking little car. Um so I, I wrote the book, and just as it was about to go to the printers, Haynes was taken over, and they put a hold on all new projects and decided not to go ahead with any of their um, manuals uh, in print form any longer. Um, they were very fair, though, and honoured all their contractual agreements and gave me full permission to take the book to another publisher. Wow. I'd done some work with Porter Press before. I'd written about three books for them. Um, I approached them. They agreed. Um, and, um, yes, again, I, I Googled to see who in the Model T world I ought to talk about, and, uh, talk to, rather, and I contacted the um, Model T Ford Register of Great Britain and was fortunate enough to speak to Chris Barker, who is their archivist. Wow. And, absolute you know fount of knowledge on the subject and an engineer himself by trade um and he put me in touch with uh, neil tuckett um who is a, another leading uh, expert in this country um and between them you know they they helped me enormously i mean i couldn't have written the book without them no, i think i want to make the point that whenever someone like me researches a book we rely heavily on the experts in, in that field, the, the experts on that particular car, um, because without them, we, we couldn't do it. Uh, and I, I often think, you know, I'm a bit of a fraud sitting here doing this because these other people, you know, know far more than I do and ought to be writing it themselves. But happily, they, they shared their knowledge with me and um, we have the end result today. Fantastic. I have to say, at this point, I picked up the book quite a few weeks ago. Uh, and was immediately taken with it. Now, like most people, I guess we've all had a fascination with the Model T Ford. Um, I think at uh, various points in your uh, in your education, you've learnt that it was the forefather of a lot of pre of production cars and such like. So I was actually delighted to be able to read it and uh, get a little more detail about it. Um, you've already answered my question. Um, the next question was, you know, the book is divided into seven plus parts, which is very traditional Hayes manual type infrastructure. So uh, that comes clear to me now. So, uh, as I say, the book's divided into history of the car, which was great, and to its adventures around the world, which one I knew about Ben Nevis, but some of the other adventures I had no idea about. Did you? No, not at all. Um, I had zero knowledge about the Model T, really, apart from the facts that you know, everyone knew about the mass production of it and 
how many million you know were made over the course of so many years um but the sheer variety of uses um it was put to the adventures people had with it going across america as you say the, up ben nevis and um across new zealand um no, no it was it was all a complete revelation to me and there, i kept finding more and more bits and i thought well, this has got to go in the book mm. you know and you you sort of start expanding a little bit and um, thinking, well, okay, I'll, I'll have to leave out something about that because this needs to go in. Um, it's uh, yeah, a very, very versatile little machine. Yeah, I guess, you know, the old adage, it's a car that changed the world, um, was not too far off the point, was it? No, you're quite right. It really did. It puts um, America on its wheels, as they say, and then it, it spread its influence to the rest of the world. Mm. Remind yeah, us okay. of how Henry Ford became involved in the automotive world of the early 1900s in the US and how the Model T came about. Well, at an early age, Henry Ford became interested in anything mechanical and apparently taught himself how to dismantle and repair pocket watches when he was quite young. Um, he um, pursued engineering and he became chief engineer at the Detroit Edison Electric Illuminating Company. Um, and it was while he was working there that he built his first car, which was a quadricycle. Yeah. And he built that in a shed at the back of his house. Um, sometime later, he left his job and set up a small company with a couple of investors. Um, and um, they formed the, the Henry Ford Company. But Henry had disagreements with his investors over the, the quality of the product, essentially. He would not let something be released unless it was absolutely right. right. His investors wanted to see a return on their money. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there were disagreements. And he went through a few iterations of, of different companies with different investors um, before um, he... Uh, he formed in, I think, in 1903, the actual Ford Motor Company. Oh. Um, just prior to that, he'd been very interested in motorsport as a way of promoting um, racing cars. And he built um, a car called the 999, which uh, an American racer, Barney Oldfield, had a lot of success with. Um, but then... With the Ford Motor Company, he um, they started off with, I think it was three models, the Model A, the Model C, and the Model F. Um, and these were then followed by others getting um, more sophisticated, more comfortable. Um, and they came to the models K and N. And again, he had these disagreements with his investors. Um, they wanted the company to go... Um, Ford on the luxury car market produced very high-end expensive cars Henry wanted to make a car for the masses mm. um, and eventually he got his own way and I mean I've got a quote of what he said here which would probably explain it um, he said I will build a vehicle for the great multitude it will be large enough for the family but small enough for the individual to run and care for it will be constructed of the best materials by the best men to be hired after the simplest designs that modern engineering can devise. But it will be so low in price that no man making a good salary will be unable to own one. 
and enjoy with his family the blessing of hours of pleasure in God's great open spaces. Well, well, well. So, you know, because things, you know, after all this time to a degree still haven't changed where you've got investors wanting to make a quick buck and move on. Um, and, you know, all those things still exist to a degree. Um, oh, yes. Over-sophistication of cars. Um, so you, you have to admire Henry Ford for sticking to his guns. But, oh, indeed. But the thing he knew the market, didn't he? Um, you know, when you look at, um, we always laugh about the hillbilly type Midwest um, uh, citizens. They were the people that bought that car in their masses. Yes, yes, indeed. He realized that uh, the roads of um, mid America were absolutely appalling, apparently, with you know huge ruts in the um, the summer and you know mud flowing around in the in the winter. And um, he made a car that um, could negotiate those type of roads. Mm. Um, the, the suspension of it allowed the each wheel to move up and down independently um, and, and cope with the what were pretty horrendous That's conditions. Right. Yeah. And he made it he made it robust and he made it affordable. Yeah. Um remind me, what were they what were they termed as? High high wheelers? Um yes, I think it was. I forget these yeah. yes, it was a bit, um yeah. which was really, really a, a progress from the horse and cart. Yes, yeah, indeed. Really, in essence, what he did. You mentioned there that um Henry always believed in keeping things simple. But his basic idea of some of the things, i.e. the flywheel magneto and the gearbox in the T, which still today forms the basis of all automatic transmissions, which is quite remarkable. Indeed. I mean, that, that's a good couple of examples of um, some of his innovations, one of which um, wasn't carried on, and that was the, the magneto and the, uh, the flywheel. And another one that was the, the transmission, which has become essentially the basis of, of automatic gearboxes today. Mm. Um, and that really was innovative at, um, you know, for its time. And it's still one of those things that you look at and um, can't quite grasp how it's No, how it's I... <laughs> <laughs> We'll come on to driving the damn thing in a minute. But um, for many years of the production, um, Ford stuck to the the basic machine, i.e. no battery, no starter motor, no gauges, um, but he eventually mm. offered these as optional accessories. That's right. He was trying to keep the costs down, um, but what happened was the Model T gave rise to this huge um, industry of accessory manufacturers, a sort of aftermarket suppliers, um, who started making all the bits and pieces that the Model T Ford owner didn't have but would like to have. And Henry eventually realised that, yes, you know, things like batteries, starter motor gauges, etc., perhaps would be a good idea to include. Tell us about the entry into production in the UK. How did that come about? That was due to the demand in both the UK and Europe for the Model T Ford. Um, and so in 1911... Um, they built a factory at Old Trafford in Manchester. At first, it just assembled components, which were shipped over from the States, but then it moved into full manufacture itself. And I think around 300,000 examples were built at, uh -huh. at Trafford Park. 
which at that time is the largest car factory in Europe. Any idea why Trafford Park Manchester was chosen? I don't actually. No, that's not I, something I, I just wondered into. whether it was, you know, uh, ease of access from components from the states into the, um, the, you know, that area of the north, or maybe the in, in the docks at Liverpool. Yeah, Liverpool yes, yeah, yeah. and maybe, well the, maybe the industry was there in some form to, to, um, beforehand. So. The $64,000 question, what's it like to drive? <laughs> and, and probably equally, what's it like to stop in these uh, matches? <laughs> well, you have to concentrate. Um, now, I'm sure that many of your viewers will have classic cars that, which have different sort of um, styles of driving required. Yeah. But the Model T really is, is something else. Um, the throttle along with a, an advance and retard uh, control for the ignition, um, is on a lever mounted on the steering column. So you're, you're controlling the, the throttle with your, your hand. There's three pedals. The left-hand one is a clutch, which you use to select either low gear or neutral. Right. The middle pedal selects reverse, and the right-hand pedal is the foot brake. So you've got all sorts of opportunities of getting confused when you're used to driving a conventional car. Yeah. To drive it, you, you start off, you push the left-hand pedal right to the floor to select the low gear. Um, and then once you're up and running, you move the throttle with your hand. Once you move it, you then bring it, bring your foot right back off it, and that moves you into high gear neutral is a sort of central position so normally you're driving in high gear you've got your your feet off all the pedals and you're just steering and controlling the throttle if you want to stop then the brake is the right hand pedal and the brakes were described by neil tuckett who was one of the the experts who helped me as barely adequate um so you really want to make your arrangements well in advance if you're thinking of coming to a halt you know yeah. you just slow down on the throttle and and start to start pushing the brake one really interesting uh technique was shown to me by chris barker though if you're driving along you can just press the middle pedal which selects reverse the car will slowly come to a halt and then start going backwards <laughs> not not to be recommended but no, it's a, it's a good sure. party trick yeah. um the um yeah it it's i think that the thing for me was just concentrating that was the, the thing about it i was lucky i was driving down neil tuckett's farm drive so i didn't have anything coming the other way i didn't have to worry about uh negotiating obstacles or anything yeah and i guess when you think about it like a lot of cars of that time there weren't many others on the road so you really didn't have to worry about someone breaking in front of you pretty violently. No, um, that's, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, they just look absolutely fascinating to drive. Um, you mentioned um, an earlier uh, idea from Henry Ford was to use motorsport as a vehicle for sales. Um, was there much activity with the Model T and motorsport worldwide? 
There was, and far more than I had realised. I had absolutely no idea when I started um, doing the book that there was all this um, motorsport activity. There was um, cars called the Frontenac Fords, which ran at Indianapolis in 1922. And in fact, in 1923, Alfred Moss, the father of Sterling Moss, raced one in the Indy 500. Um, highly modified versions also ran at Le Mans from 1923 to 25. Um, and people have used them for hill climbs, for all sorts of things. The most unusual competitive activity is the Pig and Ford races, which uh, take place in the States, though, where um, you have an oval dirt track and about half a dozen Model T Fords and a large pen with various um, uh, pigs in them. (laughs) The drivers jump out their cars. They're all lined up on the the grid. They they jump out, run across to the pig pen, pull out a pig, and then have to drive a circuit of the the track, one-handed with the pig under one arm, pull up, exchange it for another pig, and sort of repeat this. And the winner is the one who gets to the finish line first, still holding his pig. <laughs> Marvellous. <laughs> who could have dreamt that up? Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> did, did they have any success in the Indy 500 or, or, or Le Mans 24-hour? No, not, not what you call success, but they did finish, okay. um, which I suppose in races of that length is uh, an achievement in itself. Absolutely. I forget where... Um, where Alfred Moss finished, it was something like 11th, 12th, 14th, whatever. Mm. Um, very, very respectable anyway, considering. Oh, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Um, now, you've obviously discovered or uh, researched lots of different models. Have you got a favourite of the production life of the Model T? I actually love the commercial ones, the, really? um, the vans. And I think this stems from years and years ago where I started collecting matchbox models of yesteryear and you, you've got things with Coca-Cola and Coleman's mustard mm. and everything. And I, I just, yeah, I, I, I love the sheer variety. I think of the, uh, the commercial um, mm. bodies and, and uses, which that uh, chassis was put to. I often think the uh, Austin seven vans are more interesting in some cases than the, the cars. I'd probably be shot by the, Austin Seven Appreciate Society, but there have been some brilliant, very colourful and just wonderfully restored uh, vans about. Um, looking at the book, I have to say my favourite um, has been the 1926 Improved Coupe, which oh, is yeah. a very striking-looking car. Yes, it it is, um, although it's not, I think, what everyone's idea of the Model no, T4 is, not at all. It, it's one of the later... Yeah, um yeah, the model yeah no i just uh it just uh takes me you know a, a kind of an elegant follow-on from the original which uh, i thought was very good um following on from the i mean the book is full of wonderful images uh, not only of the car but some images of the production in the us and some in the uk um most of them i guess are credited to ford um, did they part with them willingly for your book or was it a difficult task? It, surprisingly, um, only a few actually came from Ford 
um, itself. Uh, the majority have come from photo agencies such as Getty and, oh, and okay. Alamy and, and, and others. Um, I had a lot of difficulty um, whilst I was writing the book. We, we suddenly went into lockdown with coronavirus. Um, I was only able to visit um, Chris and Neil before everything kicked off at the um, early part of last year. And so um, a lot of the work I had to do was on talking to owners on the phone yeah. um, rather than actually go and visit them. And with Ford, they'd moved all their archive from the UK um, to the States. And a lot of their people were um, furloughed, were, or, you know, whatever it was called in the States. They were working from home, didn't have access to all the, the images and everything that they, they normally would. So fortunately, through the photo agencies, um, I was able to get the majority of the stuff I needed. And there's some brilliant photographs, I have to say. But some of the working conditions are a little bit dubious, to say the least. But I clearly <laughs> yes. uh, guess they didn't worry too much about that. One thing, Chaz, that amazed me, and I had no idea, and OK, we're all educated to mass production, but 1925, they were producing 8,000 cars a day. How on yeah. earth did they do that? It was just the... Um, the efficiency of the system that that Henry Ford devised. You know, he went from people um, working at what they call workstations, where they they'd had bins of components which they they put together, um, and then they moved that sub assembly onto the to the next person um, to the, the moving production line that we all know of today. Yeah, um, yeah. and. He looked after his workers. He paid them a good wage, so he wanted to make sure that he got a good job out of them. Um, and I think he was rewarded in, in that respect. Mm -hmm. And the final um, thing that came out of the book for me was the uh, adage that the car was available in other colours other than black. Yes, yes, indeed. It, it, it is a myth. Um, he did for a while only allow it, um, only make it available in black. And there's some discussion about whether this was because black paint was more durable or whether it dried quicker <laughs> and therefore speeded up the, the yeah. um, production process. Mm -hmm. But at other times, um, you could get Model Ts in red, grey, dark green. And I think at one time in midnight blue with black fenders. But of course, in black and white photographs of the period any dark color looks like looks as if black, it's black anyway. anyway which has has uh, perpetuated the uh, the myth a bit i think yeah chaz it's been brilliant to talk to you today i wish you continuing success with the book lovely to talk to you thank you chaz chaz parker <laughs>